Oh. To, to kind of begin tonight, um, I think Stephen and maybe my wife, no, she doesn't have it, um, might be some of the only ones with this uh, booklet about the resolutions and what they are. Um, if you don't have a copy of this, you should get one. They're, they're um, in the bookstall at, at church. Um, super, super helpful. Um, and we're using that as sort of a, a guideline and a, uh, a structure to talk about some, some different things about how to um, live the Christian life and, and walk in a way that's honoring to the Lord. And last time we were together, we, we looked at what does that take? What does it look like? And we looked a little bit about who Jonathan Edwards is because this is written by him. Um, and so to kind of recap a little bit about him, Jonathan Edwards was a, uh, was a pastor and a writer and professor um, in the early 1700s. He, he died, um, if I remember right, 1753, um, early 17, uh, mid-1700s. And um, <clears throat> when he went to, for the first time really leaving home and school, uh, went to be sort of an interim pastor in New York City at the time, big bustling city, not the largest city in the in the colonies at the time, but a really significant city. He, he's trying to figure out, okay, how can I so structure and order my life? He's he's only been a believer for about a year and a half at this point. He's he's about nineteen when he begins writing these. He writes down over the course of about a, a year, a little over a year. Um, he writes down seventy resolutions, seventy statements and decisions that he's saying, okay, here's how I can orient my life towards glorifying God. Here's how I can discipline myself for godliness. And so what we're going to be doing this evening is actually looking at um, probably four, maybe five of them, one, two, three, four, um, four of them this evening, and uh, looking at how Edwards did that and, and sort of seeing, okay, are these scriptural? And if they are, um, what value do they have for us? Because at the end of the day, this is just a tool. At the end of the day, this is just something that is um, potentially helpful for us to say, okay, here's, here's how one guy um, some 300 years ago ordered his life, and I think we can look at it now 300 years removed and say successfully towards glorifying God and being disciplined for godliness to where we can say, okay, how much of this is um, something that we can imitate? How much, of, how much of it is imitable for us that we can look and say, okay, he did it this way. I think that I think that lines up with scripture, and I want to live that way too. I, I think that would be helpful for me to practice as well. And so tonight we're going to look at four of those. Um, and uh, the the topic really, just to kind of ease us into it, um, the structure for for how we're going through this is is really taken from this book, The Unwavering Resolve of Jonathan Edwards. Um, again, also available at the bookstore at the church, um, but. Uh, is providing sort of the structures we walk through this and the groupings of these because there's there's 70 of them we're going to be handling several at a time um, over the course of probably about six different meetings um, this is our second one specific specifically getting into the resolutions so tonight we're going to be looking at these four on the topic of a life devoted to the glory of god because uh this for edwards is really the overarching um supreme goal it, it comes first in the in the in the resolutions it comes as the main thing it, it, in that he's saying before everything else is as, as the sort of determining guiding principle for how i want to discipline myself for godliness 
and the purpose that I view that I am here for, I'm here for the glory of God. And so this is what he says in the first resolution. Number one, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, however so many and however so great. So that's a really big, thick statement. And, and so we're going to kind of pull that apart in just a minute. Uh, but suffice to say, for Edwards, he means to bend his entire life towards this singular focus that whatsoever be the, be the most to God's glory. He wants to really harness all the different elements of his life and harness everything that he's doing and say, this is what my life is going to be about. This is the singular focus and goal and resolution that my life will be for this in particular. And I think it's important before we jump too far away from this that that, that makes sense. That we can't live, and this is going to be something that comes up, that, that we can't live as a person divided. Um, and this is, this is critical. We, 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 the rest won't really matter if we, if we think we can live some sort of like part-time Christianity. If we've trusted in Christ, if it means that we're actively, presently believing in his work, past, present, future, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do, as our only acceptance before God, as the only remedy to our sin guiltiness, as the only hope uh, to, to uh, be delivered from the, the penalty of death that lies on us, the only um, reconciliation to our separation from God, if that's what we're trusting in, we can't view this as sort of like a, well, I switch my Christianity on and I switch it off and it only has this sort of uh, jurisdiction on certain par parts of my life. It's got to be our ongoing reliance. If we've trusted in Christ, it's who we are. We have a brand new identity. So I don't like going too far in, in any of this, just looking at Edwards. And so I, I want to open the Bible with you. So if you've got your Bible, we're actually going to look at Philippians, book of Philippians, chapter 1. And I want to show you from God's Word one of the best examples I believe we have of someone living like this. I, I don't think that this is Edwards just sitting around one day and going, all right, what would be... Um, what would be, you know, a good idea? Ah, this sounds pretty good. I've heard other people say this. And, and by the way, Edwards is not the first person to put something like this down. He's not the first to really come to this conclusion. Um, and, and so we'll sort of bounce back and forth with Edwards. So in Philippians, Paul's writing um, from Roman custody. He's in chains. He's, he's chained to a Roman soldier. Um, and he writes in uh, Philippians chapter 1, talking about how despite the fact that he's in prison, despite the fact that he's um, locked up for the sake of the gospel, the gospel has gone forward, God's, God's purpose is still being accomplished, and even though his life is in jeopardy as a proclaimer of the gospel, this is what he says begin, beginning in verse um, really 18, as, as he's saying, listen, there's some who are preaching Christ in order to try to get me in trouble, and there's some who are preaching Christ um, for the right motive. He says in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know, verse 19, that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, 
that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, listen, I'm confident that just as it has been, God will receive glory from me, whether that is from my life or whether that's from my death. Paul can say this because he has so lived and arranged his life that no matter whether he lives or whether, whether he dies, Christ is going to be exalted. That, that Paul has, again, bent his life towards a singular purpose. And he has surrendered himself to what that will do. He surrendered himself to the consequences of that. Saying, if it means my death at the hands of a, of, of a Roman um, government and justice system that's going to put me to death for preaching the gospel, then so be it. Christ will be exalted. If that means I go free and I'm going to have more fruitful labor, which he says is what he believes God is going to do with him, and in fact is what happens. He says, then Christ is going to be exalted. And what he says is, in, in all this, I'm just going to rejoice. He's, he's going to continue on, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's... he's just resolved that what he's doing, it's for the glory of God. And no matter really the circumstances, that's what he desires. And so we've got to ask the question, how about us? How about us? Have we so engineered and, 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 and structured our lives and bent everything towards a singular purpose of glorifying God that we could say with Paul this exact same thing? If, if you're familiar with the, the question from sharing the gospel, or maybe you've heard people say it, maybe even in a joking way, the old, you know, if you were to die today, what would happen? If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Um, but, but I think we could also ask it, if you were to die today, would your life be a shining example of Christ's exaltation? If you were to die today, would people look at your life and, and the, the patterns in it, the, 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 the trajectory that you're on and say, Man, that, that, that guy, that girl, that, that person made much of Christ. They wanted to exalt Christ in, in their decisions and their time and the way that they lived and, and, and the trajectory that they were on, the things that they wanted to do. So back to Edwards real quick. On this theme, right towards the end of his life, Edwards wrote, For it appears that all of the is ever spoken of in the scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. And I think it's important that, for instance, here in Philippians 1, the passage like this, um, where we're reminded in, in, excuse me, in verse 6 that, you know, he who began a good work in us is going to see it through to completion, that, that, um, that, uh, let me make sure I put that right. Yeah, from confidence to think that he who began to get working, you will see it, uh, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, we have this idea that, like, okay, the cross, God, um, it, it's, it's all about us. That the ultimate goal in Jesus dying on the cross was just to save us, just to make us happy. Um, it's just for our deliverance. But ultimately, they're not. Ultimately, they're about God and His glory. That he, he tells us in Scripture, He saved us so that we would be witnesses for Him, to Him, of Him. That in the ages to come, He would, he would display to us His ending, ending glory. And even in Ephesians, it goes on later to say um, that he's, what He's doing in the church is, is as a witness to the manifold wisdom of God on a cosmic scale. 
what that means then is that ultimately what God is doing, even in delivering us from sin, delivering us from death, it's for his glory. And that's good and that's right. And, and I think in this resolution, Edwards captures that really well. And he says, I will do whatsoever I think to be most of God's glory and to my own good profit and pleasure. Not only does he say, I want to seek the glory of God because that's what God's end is. In fact, he's saying, by saying, I want to seek the glory of God, what he's saying is, I'm going to seek the same thing that God is seeking because God is after his own glory. But he also doesn't see these things as contradictory. He doesn't see them as conflicting. And I think often there's a, there's a tendency to think that like Christians are supposed to be like, like Christian Buddhist, Christian nihilist, that are, that are sort of like, you know, we're, we're annihilating ourselves and our personality and, and we're just not supposed to feel, we're not supposed to, we're supposed to be above everything. We don't, you know, nothing bother, bothers us and there's this sort of like stoic attitude towards everything. Um, but it's in the very same book that we, we open to in the scripture in Philippians where Paul's going to say rejoice. And if we're supposed to walk through life as stoics and unfeeling and unaffected and untouched, why would we be commanded to rejoice? Instead, we're shown in the scriptures that <clears throat> the greatest happiness and the greatest joy and the greatest satisfaction is in knowing Christ and Him crucified. That's what Paul says himself. That's what the testimony of everybody in scripture is, that, that ultimately satisfaction is found in knowing God. Even in Sunday morning, or on Sunday morning, this coming Sunday morning when we look in Sunday school at Psalm 73, one of the things that you'll, you'll hear is, in the last verse of Psalm 73, it says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. In other words, that close, intimate fellowship with God, trusting in Him, relying on Him, is good. And the Psalms, it'll say things like, <clears throat> it'll say things like, um, it is good, it's pleasant, it's enjoyable to sing praises to God, to know Him. I, I would rather be in um, the house of the Lord. The psalmist is gonna say, just continually these things expressing the delight. Uh, think about Psalm 119. My delight is in the law of the Lord. I mean, these things are just everywhere. I love your commandments, your statutes. That's what the psalmist is going to say in terms of how he relates to God. And what that means is that ultimately we're to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. And that, that comes from, if you're not familiar with that, that comes from... Um, the, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism that was written as a sort of um, way of helping learn key doctrines of Scripture way back in the Puritan era. And, and it was sort of a question and answer method of learning to where, um, especially with young younger kids, it would be sort of, hey, here's this question and here's the response that you would have to this. And so it's a training of, sort of like when you see with our kids and stuff, you'll see, okay, hey, what are you supposed to say? Please, right? So here's, here's the question, here's your prompt, and you know what the response is supposed to be. So the catechisms work that way. And so it would be, what is the chief end of man? What is the reason that humanity exists? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And really, they're onto something when they say that. <laughs> because we're to enjoy God. Not as a, like, oh, I have to enjoy God. It, understand we're to enjoy God because God is enjoyable. Edwards, in recognizing this, says, I'm going to pursue joy and the glory of God. This is profitable to me. This is pleasurable for me. I'm able to enjoy God. But we're so, 
we're so deluded by what this world offers. So often our, our eyesight, even as believers, can be so fogged by this world. We're still in recovery um, from the, the trauma of sin's deadness in us that even somebody who's a, a believer, they have to sort of still be wiping the sleep of, of sin's death from their eyes to, to adjust, to see things the way that they really are. One of the things that, that Philip had on this past Sunday, um, preaching Matthew 11, and when he talked about the end of Matthew 11, Jesus says, come, all, come to me, all you um, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, I remember I was studying through that before he preached, and I was making notes in my Bible. And one of the things I thought of is like, okay, but what is the yoke? What is the burden of Jesus? What are we commanded to take up? From Jesus. What is it? What does Jesus command us to take up? A cross. A cross. Daily. The old Bonhoeffer quote, right? The, the call to be a Christian is a call to come and die. Was, wait, Jesus, you just said your yoke is easy and your burden is light, and yet the burden that you call me to take up is a cross? How does that work? But recognize... What that means is that the burden that somebody who has not come to Christ carries is unspeakably heavier than they know. If the yoke and the burden that Jesus says of dying daily is light and easy, what does that say about the the burden of the world? The burden of the unbeliever. And yet... We're so numbed and deceived by the world that we believe that whatever the world is offering is somehow less than what Jesus is calling believers to. And when I was reading that, and I was talking to Philip a little bit about it, I, I told him it reminded me of, um, there, was a, there was a man who went as a missionary and, and, and served for a long time as an explorer in, in Central Africa, David Livingston, um, and he came home at one point, <clears throat> and he was, he was doing an interview as people were like, listening to him talk um, about how he was exploring the interior of Africa where, where it had not been mapped, it had not been charted previously. Um, and he was doing that with the eye, with the view towards, uh, I want to explore this so that missionaries can come in and, and do gospel work. Um, one of the things that he said about that was, people were like, man, you've sacrificed so much. And, and he, his response to that was like, I've never made a sacrifice. People are like, how can you say that? Your health and this and years and all of this and the dangers you've run into. It's just like, listen, I've done this for my Lord and what awaits me is so much greater than anything I'm going to give up here. And that echoes, that, that, that resonates in Scripture. When, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, sir, uh, good teacher, what I have to do to be saved? And, and Jesus eventually brings him to the point where he, he's pinpointing his idolatry and saying, okay, <clears throat> then you need to sell everything that you have and follow me. And the rich man goes away sorrowful and, and the disciples are shocked. They're taken aback. They're aghast. And they're going, man, if, if this guy can't do it, and, and the disciples wind up asking, Jesus, we've left houses and lands and inheritance and business and family and friends. What are we going to get? That guy, he's not going to get eternal life because he wouldn't leave his stuff. We've left all that stuff. What are we going to get? And, and Jesus essentially says, listen, whatever you've given up, you're going to get ten times in this life and in the life to come. In the sense of, 
Whatever you sacrifice is not really a sacrifice to God. Edwards is keying in on this when he talks about this and says, listen, when we pursue God's glory, we find our joy. Because this is what we've been created for, is to glorify God. So, we've got to really begin to ask, what does it mean to glorify God? Because it's all well and good to, to sort of use the, the, the church in ease and say, yeah, I'm glor- glory of God. I want to lift the glory of God. I want to, I want to glorify God with my life. But what does that actually mean? Well, first, when we talk about glory, we're talking about the, the radiant excellence, the, the greatness of God. It, it is the essence of who God is because the Bible says God is glorious. He, he is full of glory. And so when we say we're glorifying God, that doesn't mean that we're, we're adding, adding anything to him, essentially. We're, we're not giving, when we say we're giving glory to God, we're not adding something to God. God doesn't need our glory. He's not like the gods of mythology who, um, I, I, I didn't really know this for a long time, um, but there's a movie that portrays this perfectly that apparently nobody saw, um, but we all know a line from, okay? Um, Clash of the Titans. Release the Kraken, right? Okay? You know that line? So, in that movie, Liam Neeson, so there's your reason to see it, Liam Neeson um, is playing one of the, the Greek mythological gods, and the gods are, yeah, he's playing Zeus, and he's, they're growing weak, and they're being drained of their power, and they desperately need the hero to go and sort of revive worship of these gods because without the worship and adoration of the people they're growing weak and feeble and they're not going to be able to help them and protect them and that's the mindset of a lot of 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 false religions is the idea of like we've got to worship our gods or they're not going to be able to help us like how backwards is that but sometimes i think we can misunderstand what it means to give god glory as if he needed it i love the way that that the Psalms deal with this when, when God sort of speaking in the Psalms says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you about it. What could you do? What could you, I mean, the Psalmist writes about that again. What, what can we render to the Lord for all of his benefits? Paul quotes from the Old Testament in Romans chapter 11 when he says, who has given the Lord and then is going to come and collect? That, that God should repay him. When we're talking about glorifying God, we're not talking about hey, we need to help God out, make him strong. We don't make God glorious. Instead, glorifying God means revealing who he actually is. It means, essentially, when we glorify God, when we're giving glory to God, we are attributing to him exactly what he is worth. We're, we're confessing who he is. We're, we're, we're demonstrating his worth. We're enjoying him. That's what it means to glorify God. Enjoying him in truth. Glorifying God is, is accurately representing him to a, a, an audience, even if that audience is ourself. One of the passages I love this uh, about this, when it comes to application about it, is, is Isaiah 42.8, where the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God's not about sharing his glory. He's not about sharing that glory with 
people. He's not about sharing their glory within this text with graven images, but here's the deal. He's not, we can't limit the implications of that. Now the reality of what that's saying is God's saying, I'm not sharing my glory with some idol that you say is me. But the implications roll out even farther into our, our day-to-day experience. The God is saying, I, I'm not going to share what, what I'm worth and, and my, my excellence and my adoration. I'm not going to share that with anything in your life. What we hold most supremely valuable ought to be God. And anything that we hold supremely valuable above him, parallel with him, or just beneath him is an idol. And God says, I'm not sharing my glory with that. Because he alone is worthy. And ultimately, that's why we glorify God, is because he's worthy. Because he has intrinsic worth. In other words, he's just worth worshiping. He is, like we already said, glorious. But beyond that, he has, he has worth for glorifying. He's worthy of glory because of his works. He's done great things. Therefore, we glorify him. We look at everything that's created like if you if you really stop and think, you read the scriptures that talk about one of my favorite verses, Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What that just said there is for from him. In other words, everything that exists, John chapter one, everything that exists that has being and substance came from him. In other words, he is the author, the originator of all that is. All that actually is. Every bit of you, every molecule in the universe, every bit of matter, it came from God. And it came to being through him as well. That he's the sustainer and the upholder of all things. And ultimately, it's all about him. Everything that we see that's, that's magnificent and glorious in creation, everything that we see that's magnificent and glorious in human invention, that creativity, you know, we, we look at somebody who, who can invent and, cre- and create products, and, and the Apple Expo was last week, and they came out with the XS, the, the like, hey, this is a big deal. Well, all of the creativity that people are like, ooh, oh, look at this, this is amazing. Um, Stephen and I have talked about the, uh, the Falcon, the Falcon rockets from Elon Musk and SpaceX. It's amazing. This stuff is incredible. All of that creativity, all of that brilliance, that's, that's kid stuff to God. That came from him. The ability for people to fire their synapses that way came from God and through him, and it's supposed to be used for him. But beyond even just his works in general, there's the work specifically in Christ. The work of redemption through Jesus Christ is, is worth glorifying him for. It was a Trinitarian act. You, you read that in some, of the, in some of the epistles, especially in the opening where we'll talk about how uh, Ephesians, I think, is one of the clearest where it talks about, you know, the Father chose before the foundation of the earth that people would be saved through the Son and sealed by the Holy Spirit. You see all three persons in the Trinity at work there. He's worthy of being glorified. And, and we see that even in Philippians, if you have your Bible, you look at me at Philippians chapter 2, and verse 9, talking about the obedience that Christ um, uh, rendered in 
humbling himself, taking on flesh, and, and being obedient even to the point of death, uh, obedient to the point of death, even, even death on the cross. Verse 9, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is for the glory of God. So now that we've kind of looked at what glory is, we've got to really begin to ask, okay, how do I glorify God? Well, let's, let's go back to the last line of Edward's first resolution, where he says this, Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, however so many and however so great. Edwards got that he had in the gospel and in his relationship with the Lord who made him a treasure that was more valuable than anything. Edwards got that. He recognized, realized, estimated that the gospel and his relationship with the Lord was more valuable than anything. But he also recognized that it would take effort and striving and discipline, things we're, we're going to hit as we go through this. <clears throat> because that's what most of these resolutions are about. They're, they're the discipline of keeping this first resolution. He, he got that it would take effort. He got that it would take bringing his life to a point, like, like I've been using this imagery, bending it all towards the glory of God. And it wouldn't always be easy. Nobody accidentally becomes godly. Nobody accidentally grows in Christ-likeness. It even comes up in the next resolution, the second one, where, where Edward says this. <clears throat> Resolve to be continually endeavoring. One of the things that's great about these is that it, it talks about there's labor involved. It takes work. Resolve to be continually endeavoring to find out some new invention and, and contributions to promote the forementioned things. In other words, he says this. Edwards was going to deliberately seek out ways to glorify God. Steve Lawson says here on, on the second resolution, Edwards sought always to be reforming his life for a better pursuit of the glory of God. He was going to chip at and, and mold and shape and beat himself into, I, I, I want to glorify God. That's what I want to do. And so other things have got to go. And it's going to be difficult. But that's what I want to do. And again, Paul provides us with one of the most accessible and imitable scriptural examples of somebody who bent everything in their life to the glory of God. Paul talked about, I beat my body into submission. That, that he's going to discipline himself. He's going to live consciously for the glory of God. Listen, in the same way that we don't grow in godliness accidentally, we don't happen upon glorifying God. We don't happen upon glorifying God in our day-to-day -day lives and in our practices accidentally. Even in Edwards recognizing this, he, he makes the fourth resolution. A resolve never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more. And, and when he says that, whether in soul or body, less or more, he's, he's making reference to whether it's a physical action or whether it's a thought, whether it's something external or internal. But what tends to the glory of God, nor be it, no, excuse me, nor be nor suffer it, if I can possibly avoid it. And again, the, the rest of all these 70 resolutions are going to grow out of the first one. The third one does, but I, I like the way that, that Lawson terms this uh, uh, when 
he's examining this particular resolution, he calls it com a comprehensive strategy for glorifying God. In other words, this means that Edwards decided he was going to do some good things. He was not going to do some good things so he could do the best thing. This means having a singular vision of God's excellent worth so that come what may, we're going to glorify God. And we've, we've got to get this. If we're going to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, according to the design that God has, according to the worth that God has, if we're going to do that, it's going to cost us. It will mean not doing some things. And listen, I, this, this brings back to, we'll see this more fully in, in one of the other res resolutions, but this brings back to what, what Paul says when he says, Listen, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. In the 23rd resolution, Edwards is going to say this, Resolve frequently to take some deliberate action, which seems most unlikely to be done for the glory of God, and trace it back to the original intention, designs and ends of it, and if I find it not to be for God's glory, to repute it as a breach of the fourth resolution. These are interconnected. They're building on top of one another. And Edwards is saying, I'm going to look at my, my actions, look at my motive in doing my actions, and if it doesn't trace back to glorifying God, I'm not going to do that anymore. Just like I said I wouldn't do in the fourth resolution. He's holding himself to a strict standard. In the 27th resolution, he says this, Resolved never willfully to omit anything, leave off anything, except the omission be for the glory of God and frequently to examine my omissions. But remember, this means that some things are going to be cut off. Some things are not going to be done in our life. There's some things that we ought not do because they don't promote the glory of God. Not that they detract from it. Listen, it's, it's obvious that we shouldn't do those things. Like, oh, this would, this would be... This would be um, defaming or this would be um, detracting from the glory of God. We would be obscuring God's glory. We, of course we don't do those things. Those are sins. Rather, what we're more prone towards is, well, this thing isn't bad for me to do. It's not, I, I can do this thing. I, it's funny. It doesn't happen so much anymore. When I first started teaching at the school, I used to have a lot of students that would come in. It happens occasionally still. Where somebody would come in and they'd be like, Mr. Maggard, is such and such a sin? And usually it's because <clears throat> either they or someone they know is doing such and such. And they want to find out, is that, is that one of the things that I can do? It's like Philip talks about um, when he was in, in student ministry. <clears throat> where people would come and, you know, in a dating relationship and be like, okay, how far is too far? And you would always answer, that's the wrong question. And the idea in that is, it's not, okay, well, how close to the line of sin can I get? The attitude that says, well, this isn't a bad thing, is the wrong attitude. Instead, the question ought to be, does this promote godliness? Does this activity, does it leave room for more godliness? Does it permit me to do that which will promote the glory of God? So I think we can ask the question for this, or this way. What are we saying no to for the glory of God? 
there's there's the sign uh, or there's the image in the in the slides at the church in the sanctuary that says why aren't you serving a nursery and it's got a picture of this this beautiful lady and in it and this this just amazing looking child it's, it's my wife and, and child so she hasn't been he hasn't seen it so he's like wow this is bold saying this in front of his wife they got real real quick and then I was like whoa what just happened no um and the idea is okay what's something that you're not saying yes to that you ought to well for some folks it's it's okay maybe they don't have the physical strength to deal with bending down holding a child that sort of thing okay that's why you're not serving a nursery okay Maybe it's, you know, we don't, we don't get on to the people that are in the praise team and be like, hey, why aren't you all serving the nursery? Some of them actually do. Um, but it's the idea of like, they've had to say no to that so that they can do something that permits them to glorify the Lord. What are you saying no to for the glory of God? I think it's an accurate question. I think it's a helpful question because here's the thing. One of the things that I, I end up saying a lot, strange. I end up saying this a lot. I said it this Wednesday. Um, I said it on Tuesday at some of my classes. Everybody does exactly what they want. So when people come and they're like, oh, you know, I, I haven't read my Bible in a month and a half. Well, why? I didn't have time. Have you eaten? Um, but here's the deal. You did what you wanted. It might be you have to deny yourself some sleep. It might be you have to deny yourself some leisure. It might be you have to deny something else that's not sinful but it doesn't promote godliness and it doesn't permit you to pursue godliness. Because again, this will cost you. A life devoted to the glory of God will cost you. I'm going to read kind of a long quote from this book by Lawson um, at the end of the section. Here's, Here's what he says. Living for God's honor must be the chief aim in every person's life. But what brings the most glory to God? This is the interpretive key for every life life decision. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Do you want to know who to marry? Do you want to know what job to take? Do you want to know what ministry you should pursue? Do you want to know how to invest your resources? Do you want to know how to spend your time or how to use your time? Every decision and direction must come under this overarching goal of bringing glory to God. A life of resolve comes with a price tag. Listen, the, those questions of, okay, what, do I, what job do I take? What school do I go to? What career path do I choose? What person do I marry? What, what do I do with my time? The interpretive lens that that's got to pass through is, is glorifying to God. Not, oh, is this sinful? But is this glorifying to God? Does this promote godliness? Is this making my life one that is devoted to, to the glory of God so that whether by life or by death, I'm going to glorify the Lord who is worthy. Because again, at the end of this, God is glorious. So we've got to live a life devoted to glorifying Him exactly as He is glorious. Any questions? That's the end.